And yet that song set it up very well. First thing I want to say, however, is good morning to everybody. I think I'm... Yeah, I'm amplified. Good morning to everybody. It is absolutely awesome to see so many here this morning. I know that we have guests and visitors amongst us. I want to let you know that it is our privilege and blessing to have you amongst us this morning. If you have any questions about anything you hear, see, encounter, experience, by all means, let us know. Let me know. Um, I'll be glad to give you my email, my phone number, and any amount of time that you need. It is awesome to have you with us. Also, it is wonderful to see so many faces of brethren that we have not seen for a while, several indeed, and uh, very, very grateful as I look out this morning. Thank you all for being here. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, if you would. When I first arrived here just a little over two and a half years ago, one of the very first Bible classes that I ever taught had to do with the first recorded sermon that the Son of God ever taught. When he started his earthly ministry nearly 2,000 years ago, that Bible class was a study on the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what we commonly refer to as the Beatitudes. And so we progressed through that, but as we also mentioned a number of times in that study, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20 is the apex. It is the summit. It is the theme of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 and verse 20 says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no man... Yeah, I can say that word. You will by no means enter kingdom of heaven. And the reason I call it the apex, the reason I call it the mountain, the summit, the theme, is, is here's why. If you go through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus' whole point in the Sermon on the Mount is that your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you look at everything that comes before Matthew 5 and verse 20, it's like climbing up the side of the mountain. What he's getting to is that point he's going to make in Matthew 5.20. Blessed are the poor in spirit and all of those things that the Pharisees were not. He's setting the stage. He's getting up there to that, to that mountaintop theme that he's trying to put across with the whole Sermon on the Mount. And everything after Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, all the way down the other side to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, is simply an illustration, an application of the truth that he's taught you. When he says, don't act like they act. They think that they're righteous because they pray and do this in front of people. That's not right. And he goes on to say, you know, you've heard this said and that said and all these things. That's not true. All of that simply boiled down is, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, this is all the things they're doing, unless you're better than that, you shall by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, Shortly after that, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, God in the flesh, gets into some of the most difficult to implement, but still essential to eternal life teachings of the entire sermon. After nearly approximately 400 years of silence from God, God in the flesh comes on the scene and in his first recorded sermon, 
tells us what righteousness that gets us to heaven looks like. Not that we can ever earn our salvation because we cannot. Do not get that idea that is not possible. But we are expected to live righteous and holy in him, are we not? And so he gets into, again, some of the most difficult to implement but still essential to eternal life lessons of the very first things that he would ever tell the people. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. He said, This is what you've heard taught. This is what the Pharisees taught. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, <clears throat> what reward have you? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you simply love those that are nice to you and love you, he said, just like the rest of the world, aren't you? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Don't even the tax collectors do that? Tax collectors were looked down on worse probably in that day than they are today. And he said, look, do that. they do that. They, they greet those who greet them. They love those who love them. They, they interact with those who will interact with them. They treat nice those who will treat them. But he said, my kingdom's different. He says in verse 48, therefore you shall be perfect. The word means complete. Just as your Father in heaven is perfect. How do we do that, Jesus? Verse 44 stands at the very heart and soul, the very center, the very heart and soul, I, I don't know how to put it any more intensely, of that scripture, of that text that I just read. And it shall also serve today as the centerpiece of this sermon. I want us to begin with the first phrase or phase of that instruction. Jesus tells us to do something that runs completely contrary to human nature, absolutely opposite of what Satan would have us to do. He said, love your enemies. That's not easy. It's not, we all know that. He didn't say this is easy. He said, love your enemies. Jesus, how do we do that? He showed us. Because you see, as I mentioned in the Bible class this morning, Jesus does not expect us to do anything that he didn't do first. He doesn't expect us to do anything that he didn't do on an exaggerated level from what he expects from us first. Love your enemies. That is exactly what God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and what we just celebrated here showed us how to do. Romans chapter 5. Keep your finger here in Matthew 5. We'll come back to this repeatedly. Romans chapter 5. Please turn there with me. Make sure that you check out every word that I say. God's word is the only word that counts, not Doug's. Love your enemies. 
what God did. The reason that you and I can pray to him this morning, the reason that you and I have a hope, the reason that our prayers are heard, the reason that you have an eternal home in heaven is for one reason, because God loved his enemies. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still separated from God, while we were still enemies to God, Jesus went to the cross for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, there's your word, there's no doubt about it. If when we were enemies, if when we were living in sin, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. If when we were enemies in sin, God was still willing to give his son for us, and we've been brought back to God through that. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And, and I love just one quick side note of uh, implication of that text that I absolutely love is the fact that he said, look, if God loved you enough to give his son for you when you were his enemy, now that you're his child, much more so, what is God willing to do to help you? But the point is, he showed us how to love our enemies. That's exactly what we just celebrated. Having, having and exhibiting such godly love often, if not always, involves overlooking a lot of hurtful things and just letting go of them. His brother Kirk so biblically showed us in last Wednesday night's devotional, and his King Solomon so simply and beautifully detailed for us in Proverbs 19 and verse 11, when he wrote by divine inspiration the following, the discretion of a man makes him slow to anger and his glory, man's glory, is to overlook a transgression. Wow. But that's not all King Solomon said about that. Not only is the discretion of a man that makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression, King Solomon also told us something else in Proverbs 10 and verse 12. This is what he said. He said, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Love covers sins instead of exposing them. Love covers sins instead of causing strife. Something that Peter latched onto in 1 Peter 4 and verse 8 when he would write, and above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter covers the same thing King Solomon did. You'd think there's writing by authority of the same spirit, wouldn't you? That's facetious, of course they were. Such a godly love is always willing and ready and wanting to forgive. It wants to, it's eager to. Is God eager to forgive us? God just waiting to forgive us if we'll just ask, is he? Yeah. God doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. Such a godly love stands ready, willing, and wanting to forgive. Listen, despite the faults, despite the failures, and despite the persecutions of the perpetrators. 
In Acts chapter 7, verses 59 through 69, they were stoning Stephen. You remember what he said? And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And, and then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice. That, check this out. D don't, don't miss this, okay? He was calling on the Lord for himself, saying, Lord, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice. And I think there's a reason that the Bible shows us there's a difference between when he was talking about himself and when he's crying out with a loud voice. When he's crying out with a loud voice, what is he crying out? What's he talking about? What's on his mind when he's really laying it out there? Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. That's love. 2 Timothy 4.16, Paul says, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. Paul said, they all ran. Nobody defended me. May it not be charged against them. This type of godly love is a love that always stands ready to give forgiveness. Just as God was ready to give forgiveness when he came. Psalm 86 in verse 5 says, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. You're ready. God is just waiting. That's what the psalmist said. For you, Lord, are good, ready to forgive, and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. Those outside, is God ready to forgive those outside of his family? Is God ready to forgive those inside of his family? Is God ready to forgive all who call upon him? Absolutely. He's ready. Nehemiah 9 and verse 17, Nehemiah recants some of the failures of God's people in days past, and he says, they refused to obey and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. Listen to this. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Isn't that a beautiful passage? God said, I'm sorry, Nehemiah said, they messed up bad. They fought against Moses, they fought against you, but you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and you didn't forsake them. You didn't leave them even when you should have, or could have. Such godly love, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, treats the transgressor with patience and kindness. We know the passage, I'm not even going to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, this kind of godly love is not envious, proud, or jealous. It does not behave or act rudely. It is not easily provoked. It does not cause one to think evil and always assume the worst regarding another's intentions. This kind of godly love that we read about in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 is also the kind of love that does not keep a record of the wrongs suffered against it, whether real or imagined. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This kind of love never fails to be these things. You know, this is the same kind of godly love and forgiveness. When, when, when Jesus said that we need to love our enemies, this is the same kind of love that the Apostle Paul insisted all Christians had received from God. Even when we were enemies, God loved us. 
And because we've all received it from God, we must pass it on to one another. That's, that's the point. We don't just get this love. We must pass the same type of love and forgiveness on to others, extend it to one another in order for there to be peace and harmony within his church. In places like Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 through 5 and verse 2, as well as Colossians 3, 1 through 15, and a whole host of other places say, as those who have received the forgiveness of God, the reconciliation, even when you were enemies, you got to pass it on. You got to do the same for others. So as we go back to Matthew 5 and verse 20, after he says, love your enemies, Jesus told us three ways to do that. And I'd like to look at those three things. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. I'll get there in just a minute. Before we wrap up on the phrase, love your enemies, I want you to turn to me to Romans 12. I hate it when I get ahead of my notes. Please forgive me. Romans chapter 12 and verse 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. Let it be without a mask. Let it be true. Let it be sincere. That's the idea. He goes on in verses 10 and 11 to say, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That's what godly love looks like. So as we go back again, and this time I'm right where my notes left off. If we go back again to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, after telling us to love our enemies like that, tells us three ways to do it. The first of those three ways, if we are to have our righteousness surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees so that we can indeed go to heaven, is to bless those who curse us. Bless those <clears throat> who curse you. Now, brethren, I am not foolish enough, naive enough, or immature enough to stand here in front of you and say, yeah, piece of cake, because it ain't. Can I use the word ain't down here? Is that okay? Everybody with me? Yeah, okay. For all of you who are more grammatical and, and, and have a better command of the English language, no, it isn't. It's not easy. But with God's help, can we do it? With God's help, can we do it? I can do all things through Christ to give, and I'll tell you what, Christ has got to give us strength because it doesn't come natural. He didn't say it came natural, he said do it. Bless those who curse you. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 8 in the English Standard Version say, but I say to you who hear, doesn't mean just hearing the words, it means you're taking them in. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. Romans 12 and verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. They're all saying the same thing. Look what Peter said about this in 1 Peter 3. Yes, we must bless those who curse us. 1 Peter 3. Verses 8 and 9. 
I mean, Luke got it. He wrote in Luke 6, 27 and 8 what I told you. Paul got it. He wrote in Romans 12, 14 what I told you. Peter got it. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Know that, that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Brethren, as Christians, this is our calling. Did you see that? Did you see where Peter said that? This is what we were called to do, to bless those who curse us, this is what separates or sets us apart from the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. This is what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what elevates us above their righteousness. For as we know, Peter would also write, or had just written in this very same book, 1 Peter 2, verses 19 through 23, where he says, For this is commendable if, because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it? When you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, that's commendable before God. For to this you were called. You think Peter was trying to make a point. That was our calling, wouldn't you? For to this you were called. That's the whole point. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. This is godly love. This is the kind of love that sets us apart from the scribes, the Pharisees, and the rest of the world. Could our world use a little bit more of this kind of love today? Our world's a mess. Our world needs the kind of love that says, I forgive you, and all of those things that we're talking about today. Whose responsibility is it to show them that? ours, isn't it? Who else is going to show them? I don't know of any. The second way, according to Matthew 5, that we must not only genuinely love one another by blessing those who curse us, we must do good to those who hate us. That's what he says. Once again, I would note Paul's writings in Romans 12. When it's talking to do good to those who hate us, Romans 12. Beginning in verse 16. You want, to, you want to know how to do that, how to carry out Jesus' teaching, how our righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? Here's the second way. Do good to those who hate us. Romans 12, verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Do everything. Listen, you can't control anybody else. You can't. <laughs> Spouses, can you control your spouse all the time? You always make them think exactly what you think? Or your kids? Of course you can't. You can control one person, and that's you. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. This flows out of living peaceably. Don't take vengeance. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, therefore. 
or says the Lord. The Lord says, I'll take care of it. Has God got this? Has God got this? Somebody does something terribly unkind to you, terribly unchristian, can God handle it? Is God probably better suited to handle it than you can? Can God see into their hearts further than you can? Does God know whether or not they're having a bad day more than you do? Yeah. So guess what? Remember those old commercials? I'm sure somebody must have had a slogan similar to, leave it to the professionals. Leave the vengeance to the professionals. God in Christ. God says, I got this. So you, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Don't overcome, don't be overcome by evil. Don't, don't let it overcome you. Don't let it consume you, envelop you destroy you, don't let it, but overcome evil with good. Do good to those who hate you. Do you remember? Remember the night that Jesus was arrested? Remember the story? They come with torches and lanterns to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas is leading them. And in the ensuing events of that evening, now remember, they had come there to arrest Jesus. Jesus knew everything was going to happen to him. John 18 and verse 4. He knew everything that was going to happen. He knew about the scourging. He knew about the crucifixion. He knew about the beating. He knew about the blood. He knew about everything Kirk mentioned this morning. He knew about, as we talked about Psalm 22 this morning in our adult Bible class, right down to the very words that were going to be said. They would gamble for his clothes. He knew it all. And one of those who came out to arrest him was a man named Malchus. And in the ensuing struggle with Peter, Peter draws a sword and whaps off Malchus's ear. You remember that? This man was one of those who came to arrest Jesus. What did Jesus do? Picked up the ear. I assume it fell to the ground. I don't read where anybody caught it. I don't know where it landed. Didn't he? He did good to those who were at the very least antagonistic. Thirdly and finally from Matthew 5 and verse 44, we must not only truly love our enemies by blessing those who curse us and doing good to those who hate us without seeking to exact vengeance upon them, but we must also, according to Jesus in that verse, pray specifically for that person. He said that we must pray for those who thus persecute us. I don't want to see any acknowledgement of any answer to this question. I just want to throw it out there. Please don't shake your heads. Don't do anything. I said don't shake your head. No. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time that somebody hurt you? Did some evil thing to you, whatever, it doesn't matter what it was. And the first thing you did was hit your knees and prayed for that person's soul with the same intensity that you would pray if it was your own child who had just gotten a deadly disease.
Luke chapter 22, verse 31, please turn there. Luke 22 and verse 31 through verse 34. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster's not going to crow this day before you'll deny me, deny three times you even know me, Peter. There's a couple things I want to see in that text. Did Jesus know that Peter was going to betray him? Yes, he did, obviously. He said what he said. Yeah, he knew. He knew that Peter was going to deny him, betray him. Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him at least once with a curse, as we read in, in one of the other gospel accounts. Yet, what did Jesus do for him? What did Jesus say he'd done for him? He said, I prayed for you, Peter. I prayed for you. He knew what he was going to do. But he said, I prayed for you. And when you've turned again, he knew he was going to fall. He knew. He knew Peter was going to, as, as I said to my granddaughter the other day, when she fell, beat buster, he knew, you know, and she almost repeated, but, but he knew Peter was going to fall right flat on his face and, and, and have a beat buster. He knew, he knew his, but he says, I prayed for you. Jesus prayed for those whom he knew would let him down like they already had. And of course, in Luke chapter 23, maybe the most famous, the most humbling, the most drive you to your knees portion of this particular point, Luke chapter 23, verse 32. There were two others, criminals led with him to be put to death. When they come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. We saw the picture that was up here earlier today on both sides with the, with the, the wrist, the spike through the wrist. And I'm guessing that probably the reason on a picture like that there's not the blood that surely flowed out of his wrist is because we, we, we don't want to, you know, uh, overly... Um, bring down the little ones and all of that and we don't want it too gory and I understand that but understand when they drove those spikes in blood came out and after all he had suffered and the beat down that he had taken and, and we know the scourging and the crown of thorns and beat we know the whole story after all of that and he's so he's so weak he can't carry his own cross people And he looks at them and he says, he prays to God for their forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. They divided his garments and cast lots and the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. They said, hey, why don't you come down from there and prove to us everything you've been saying. But he wouldn't. 
He lived to do the will of God. And the soldiers mocked him, come, offered him sour wine, said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. These are the type of people, the mockers, the sneerers, the crucifiers, for which he prayed, Father, please forgive them. It is this sort of godly love, the same kind which is marked by full forgiveness, it comes from a heart which has personally experienced that same full forgiveness. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 22. It is this sort of godly love, the kind which comes in the same exact amount, manner, and measures when God forgave us. Listen, God came and forgave each one of us when in God's eyes we were rotten. Is there a better way to put that? Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Isaiah 59, there's a great separation between us and God because of our sin. Sin is ugly to God. God hates sin. The Bible says that. God hates sin. It's abhorrent. It's repugnant. It's ugly. It's loathsome. It's all of those sorts of things. And yet he sent his son for people who were immersed in that. That's love. We didn't deserve it. that same kind of love we need to extend to others which we have received as it's told us in Matthew 18 21 through 35 because it is only that sort of genuine and sincere heartfelt and God-given love which separates us from the world around us the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees and all of those who are bound for hell just like Jesus showed us in Matthew in John 13 1 through 17 I want to read for us again as we conclude this morning Matthew chapter 5 I want to go to heaven. We all want to go to heaven. But if we are going to do so, our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, according to Jesus. Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven because he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on both the evil and the good. If you are struggling today, because this ain't easy, with a lack of that kind of godly love, or you are in conflict with another, isn't it time to just put it down and let it go? Isn't it time to just let it go and let God deal with it? Isn't it time to just surrender to God and overcome it with good as you rain down your love and blessing and goodness and prayers on that person that you may be struggling with? Maybe you've been thinking the worst about. Maybe you've been holding a grudge against or refusing to forgive. In the time, just let it go. It's too heavy to carry, and God knows what he's doing. He can handle it. 
If you're weary and heavy laden today, isn't it time to give up that load and let set yourself free from the terrible burden of carrying that around, that unforgiveness, any longer? Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we come before you as weak and vulnerable sinners, saved by grace and the blood of your Son. Father, life down here is not easy. That's why you came and experienced it firsthand. That's why we have a high priest who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We're told we can come to your throne in times of need to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Father, if there's any member of the body of Christ who is struggling with these things, we pray for your strengthening, your help, your courage, that we might all love one another as we had ought, that we might all be that one body that you want us to be. Help us all, Father, if there's any struggling, if there's any. Help us to truly love as you have loved and to lean on you for the strength and knowledge and wisdom about how to do that. We thank you that you've given us another day to get it better than we had it yesterday. Help us all, Father, as we go from this place to show everybody around us that we know what it's like to have received that love by the way that we give it. In Christ's name, amen. This morning, if it's time to lay your burden down, this morning, if it's time to lay down the burden of your sin by being baptized and having your sins washed away so you don't have to carry them anymore, this morning, if you've already done that and you've got some other burden you need to lay down, some strengthening you need, something, anything the church can help you with, that is what the Shoto Hills Church of Christ is here to do. That is what the Lord's Church overall on this planet is here for. Let us love and help you any way we can as you come forward as we stand and sing.